Scott Slate here speaking with Barry College history professor Dr. Christy Snyder. This is the time of year we look back to the birth of our nation. And as a history professor, how do you frame what was going on in 1776? I guess what I should say is I never, when I'm talking about the revolutionary period, start with 1776. I always start with uh, 1763 because it's in 1763 when um, the American colonists and the British win the French and Indian War. So they've been fighting the French and the Indians. And as a result of that fight, um, the British and American colonists, that's when they gain all of Canada. They gain all the land from the Atlantic to the Mississippi. And it's just like, you know, this kind of huge victory for them. But it also starts Britain on the path of putting in place some some new taxes, some new regulations on the American colonies to pay for that war debt. So I always start it back in 1763 um, and how these regulations get put in place and how it leads to um, American colonists starting to be resentful and starting to protest some of those new regulations and taxation. Do you get the impression the further south you travel from New England, especially all the way down to Georgia during that period, the less enthusiasm there was for a revolution? Oh, yeah, definitely, especially in Georgia. So in 1765, for example, when um, Britain puts the Stamp Act in place, uh, the colonies have this big Stamp Act Congress where they get together to protest uh, this new taxation by the British. Uh, Georgia doesn't send representatives, neither does Virginia or North Carolina um, and New Hampshire. New Hampshire is just kind of weird, but uh, <laughs> these other southern colonies, right, they, they don't participate. Why the reluctance? Do, were the folks down south during that period of time saying, hey, we've got it pretty good under colonial rule? Well, I think part of it was they didn't feel like it affected them as much. You know, uh, they didn't have the kind of the huge ports, um, although there were some out of Charleston, and that's, I'm sure, why South Carolina sent people in. Mm -hmm. uh, but Savannah wasn't yet a huge trading port. Um, and especially for Georgia, we were just such a young colony at that time, right? We'd only been established in 1733. Uh, we still depended on the British for a lot of support in protection from Native Americans and the Spanish in Florida, um, the French in uh, Louisiana prior to that time. And, and so I think there's just a lot more loyalist sentiment in Georgia. So not only is it not affecting us economically as much as it is some of the other uh, colonies, but we just needed the British a lot more. And as I, in the little bit of reading I've done here, uh, the uh, colonial governor at that time of Georgia, James Wright, uh, was he fairly well liked? Did I, do I have the right impression? Yeah, I think he was uh, fairly well, um, fairly well liked. They thought he had been doing a, a good job. Um, again, uh, he was a, a, a very wealthy uh, Georgian. He had a lot of land. He had a, a number of um, enslaved people. And um, he had been running the colony fairly successfully, I think. So there wasn't tons of resentment. Um, that does begin to change uh, around 1775 when um, 
you actually have shooting breakout in Lexington and Concord between, you know, the Massachusetts militias and British troops. That's when Georgia, I think, really starts to um, heat up. The patriot sentiment in Georgia really starts to heat up, and those loyalists are, the backlash against them begins. And Savannah at that time was, was pretty much the, the population center, was it not? Yeah, almost all of the Georgia population was, um, you know, along the coastline between the Savannah Rivers and the Altamala, Altamaha River. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's where the bulk of, of uh, Georgians resided. There was some, some population stretching up along the South Carolina border, but not much. We're speaking with Barry College history professor, Dr. Christy Snyder. I'm curious, what convinced Georgians then that this would be their fight, especially since the skirmishes were, were well, well north, hundreds of miles north? The British troops who, you know, even though they're Englishmen, they are attacking, you know, our fellow colonists. And I think that kind of starts a lot of the 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 bad feelings and then in addition as the you know as the fighting begins uh the british begin to uh recruit enslaved people to fight with them and i'm sure that for those georgians who own slaves they see this as a uh, kind of a traitorous move by the british um uh there is in addition i think just this kind of growing I mean, one of the, you know, the British does see the South as a kind of a hub for loyalist sentiment. And so there are a number of British troops in the South, including eventually uh, they um, take Savannah. And I think just that occupation of the British as well, of this, of you know, Georgia land and, and Georgia, and this big Georgia, important Georgia city causes resentment uh, too. So people who may have had been neutral or had some loyalist feelings, that begins to turn as, you know, British activity increases in the region. And there were some loyalists in Georgia who actually left for the Bahamas, right? Yeah, yeah, especially if you were a loyalist. Yeah, if you were a loyalist, yeah, you were, uh, you were, um, especially after, I mean, so Savannah was held by the British through a lot of the war. I think it doesn't, I don't think the British finally evacuated until 1782. Uh, But when they did, you know, about 2,500 loyalists leave and they take about 5,000 enslaved people with them when they, when they left. Dr. Snyder, also in line with your area of interest, and you've written extensively on the role of women in history, what what role uh, did women play in the process here? Did their status change when the colonies broke away? Well, um, it's really interesting. So, you know, women had um, no real kind of political lives, you know, prior to the revolution. Uh, one of the things the revolution does is it kind of stirs up for many women a interest in politics, and especially if their their spouses were gone in fighting in a militia or fighting in the Continental Army, they might have had to take over managing their their households or the the family farms, the family businesses, and so they you know they gained some skills, they gained some knowledge that perhaps they didn't have uh, previously. 
And uh, once, and you know, and I do think some women really do begin to see themselves as having a political role, whether that was, you know, um, boycotting British tea, or uh, there's a famous Georgia woman named uh, Nancy Hart, who um, actually spied for the the Patriots. Um, her husband was serving in the militia, and she would, um, you know, sometimes dress up as a man and wander into uh, British camps to try and, uh, you know, figure out what was going on so she could give that to uh, uh, the Patriots, give that knowledge to the Patriots. And when the war is over, there's not like, and, and the Constitution gets uh, passed and ratified, it's not like women get any formal new political role in society, you know, they're not allowed to vote or anything, but there is this kind of this idea that emerges of Republican motherhood that women should take their patriotic feelings, their, their, their political beliefs, and they should use that in raising good, you know, democratic, patriotic sons. And I think that's kind of where you see women's kind of the, the political, the, po the political feeling of women from the revolution, where it goes after the revolution is over. And, of course, the example of Abigail Adams goading her husband, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. And and uh, poor John Adams, you know, he, he responds to it as a joke, but I don't think uh, she thought it was a joke. So she had written him and say, hey, don't forget the ladies when you're making these new laws for the nation. And he's like, oh, you women, you're just like, you know, everybody else who, who wants to overchange society, the, the enslaved people who want to be free or the or the students who want to overthrow their teachers. He's like, <laughs> and so he treats it like a joke. But uh, she was pretty serious. How would you sum up Georgia's role then in the revolutionary period? You know, in, in many ways, uh, although Georgia comes late to the revolution, we are, uh, you know, we, we play a, a significant role. There's a, a couple of really important battles, uh, the victory at uh, Kettle Creek in 1779 that really, you know, helps uh, the patriotic cause in the South. And so, uh, and and the um, the revolution is, is fairly good for Georgia. Our population was pretty small when it be, we began around, uh, you know, people disagree, but maybe between 30 to 50,000. And, you know, by 1790, you're looking at um, closer to 82,000. By um, 1800, 162,000 um, in Georgia. So uh, the revolution was, was good for, for, for the state. Dr. Christy Snyder is an associate professor of history at Berry College with a focus on post-Reconstruction U.S. history, U.S. women's history, and U.S. foreign policy. Thank you for dipping back to 1776 with us. Yeah, I was glad to help. Um, have, a, have a wonderful Fourth of July.